0: Welcome to today's Europe Chat, where we're going to discuss economic issues. We live in a world where the multilateral order is at risk. We live in a world where many of our partners adopt industrial strategies with protectionist undertones. We see a fierce battle for energy and strategic materials, and we have almost chronic financial instability. So the question is not whether the EU should up its game as far as economic competitiveness is concerned, but how to do it. We recently asked a number of experts to think about those issues and we issued a European Council debrief at the beginning of March, which I invite you to look at at the TAPSA website. Now, I have decided to invite one of the authors of this uh, debrief, Professor Michel Chang, from the College of Europe. She is an expert on European affairs and, of course, on the questions we are discussing today. Uh, Welcome, Michelle.
1: Thank you very much for having me today.
0: Michelle, I want to start with simple questions. Should we be afraid of the American Anti-Inflation Act? Uh, Are we powerless compared to very forceful China, which... Uh, massively subsidizes its industries? And should we be worried about our dependence on energy and the price fluctuations which this entails?
1: Those are very big questions, so thank you for starting with something easy. I think it might be more straightforward to start at the end with the question on whether Europe is too dependent on energy, and the answer is yes. And I think that policymakers know this already, and so that's good, and they're starting to take steps to go and rectify that situation the relationship with the united states and with china is a little bit more complicated because on the one hand we see the big resurgence of the transatlantic relationship that alliance especially in the wake of the war with russia and ukraine and we've heard a lot about the strategic importance of this partnership On the other hand, we've also heard a lot about the U.S. and the competitiveness implications of the Inflation Reduction Act. So which is it? Should we be looking at the U.S. as our critical and strategic partner? Should we be looking at the U.S. as our competitor? And I would argue that we should be looking at that partnership very closely and not do anything to threaten that aggressively because in the long run, Europe and the U.S., they have much more in common than they do these differences. And these Inflation Reduction Act and the competitiveness issues, while they're important, they aren't as important as the bigger picture and then bringing in the relationship with China. If we're going to be looking at a world that is going to be less multilateral, which is where we've been going for several decades now, who are your partners going to be? And it's going to most likely be the United States. And working with the United States, we have a much better chance with the competition from China. And the EU has already acknowledged China as a competitor.
0: Uh, Thank you, Michelle. I I take that point, and... It was clear in the answers we got from the experts that there was quite a lot of consensus about the fact that while there were problems with the uh, Anti-Inflation Act, and I'll come back to that in a second, at the same time, of course, we should not overreact in it. So I, I take that point. This being said, there are challenges. I mean, if the United States massively subsidizes uh, its industry to move towards what we call Green uh, Revolution, the question arises for the EU, should we allow more and more aids? Is that what we should be doing? Are there too many risks with that for the internal market or for a subsidies raised? I mean, I'm struggling with those issues.
1: I think that we need to keep in mind two major risks if we go down the route of subsidies. One is the economic risk, and that is historically we have not seen great results from protectionism. There is a reason that European as well as other governments moved away from that. So we should bear that in mind. Governments tend not to have a great track record when it comes to picking economic winners. And you can spend and waste a lot of taxpayer money in your pursuit of this. The other risk I would point to is the political risk, and that is undermining the single market. This is the crown jewel of the European Union. It not only has economic implications, it has foreign policy implications and access to the European Union single market being an important lever when it comes to the EU's relationships externally. If you start nationalizing this, which a subsidies race would, then you threaten the European Union itself.
0: I take that point as well. Uh, But I think there are two questions with this one. The first one is, uh, we have had a long debate in Europe about whether we should have an industrial policy or no. And for a long time, there was a kind of, it was almost a dirty word to have an industrial policy. But actually, when we look around us, the United States, China, most of our competitors do have some form of industrial policy. Uh, uh, What is your take on that? I mean, uh, should we simply say, no, the market will settle everything, or uh, competitive uh, laws will be enough to do this, or should we have some form of industrial policy?
1: To be frank, I don't think the European Union is ready for an industrial policy. I see this as something that would be done along national lines, and getting back to the unraveling of the single market as a result. And if the European Union starts going down that route, how will it pay for it? Where will this funding come from? You can't just set a goal in mind, like an industrial strategy, and not also think of the implications of the tools that you would need in order to achieve it, because otherwise it just becomes a few nice policy papers.
0: Yes, but I would answer to that, that the EU has financial means. Uh, the question is how you should mobilize them. Now, if you mobilize them via state aids, then of course, you know, to some extent, you have to do it. But uh, and the the commission, by the way, has authorized more state aids in the present circumstances. But at some stage, as uh, uh, you said, there is a problem that some of our member states don't have the means to do this because of the high public debt. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think the um, uh, it raises this raises another question, and this is a question which was also touched upon in our uh, UCO debrief. It is the question of whether there should not be more EU financing. I mean, you could, of course, ask the question of increasing the EU budget, which is only 1% of GNI. You could also talk about launching a new investment program, as we did with the Resilience and Recovery Fund in the COVID crisis. Uh, What do you think about that?
1: I think that either of them are viable options, but just to get back to clarify, when I say that I don't think the European Union has a capacity, I mean as a European Union, not that the European Union members did, not that the money's not there. And so you had pointed out that the European Union budget is rather modest. And so if we were to take it from that, but who loses? You know, I don't see that working out, I think a new influx of money would be necessary, whether that comes from a larger budget or whether that comes from a new fund. Where does that money come from? Do we have the political will among the member states to agree to that? And I don't see that right now. This is why I see this becoming a nationalization exercise in the end.
0: Yes, I personally do not agree with that, actually. I think that Uh, We said at the time we launched the RRF that it would be a no precedent. We will not do it again. I am personally convinced that it will have been a precedent because it's actually working relatively well. But uh, uh, maybe let me come back and frame my question uh, differently uh, because uh, I carefully read what you uh, wrote in the EUCO debrief and you made a very important point, I think. You said that before sort of launching into big new initiatives, we should look at the policies we have and take them further. Why haven't we developed the uh, capital markets union more and the banking union? Uh, and we should also be careful about the single market. I think you made a very valid point there because regardless of whether we agree on the exact way of injecting new finance, this is a point which I think is absolutely vital for the EU. But
1: look, I would say that the reason that we haven't made more progress, it, it all comes down to political will. When when we think about this with banking union, for example, the reason that we had banking union in 2012, because it was happening in the midst of a crisis, it's not something that all of the member states were really fully on board with. And so once the crisis had subsided to a large extent, then the interest in continuing with banking union also subsided alongside with it. And I would say it's with capital markets union that Although it has a similar name, it had much more modest origins versus banking union, which also makes sense given the state of the banking system in Europe and its level of development versus capital markets union. But we haven't had that political impetus to move it forward. And so the political forces that have always been skeptical towards this. So if we think about the diversity, continued diversity, of the European banking system, as well as the European capital market system, that if we were to have integration, that in the short to medium term, there would be winners, there would be losers, states would need to adjust, and states don't want to adjust.
0: Why don't they want to adjust?
1: They don't want to adjust because in the short term, it means for some of them, it will mean losses. And so for the less efficient banks, for example, for those that are not well developed, there will be growing pains in the process. And so if I could draw an analogy with what people are talking about now with the phasing out of the internal combustion engine. Well, what about the people that make those internal combustion engines that they're from a very macro Viewpoint: this looks like a great idea, but if you think about the people that it's going to affect immediately in the very short term, they're also much more likely to be highly mobilized because they see how they're going to lose from this very quickly, whereas a capital markets union and a banking union, this does take a while to develop and the gains will also take a while before they're going to be seen.
0: Very good point. But doesn't that mean that One of the things the EU should be very careful about is to think about the social aspect of what's happening, of the revolution which is happening. And uh, would it not make sense that, at least from the EU perspective, we would push for a more balanced approach? Uh, If you simply tell the Europeans nowadays, uh, uh, Europeans act differently from Americans. This, I think, if you tell them, okay, we just we do capital markets union, banking union, which for many. Simple uh, citizens doesn't mean very much. And uh, you have to take losses for a while and in the end everything will be fine. I think in Europe it won't wash. You see the difficulties we have today in a country like France and many other countries. So how could the EU uh, sort of uh, uh, sell this idea which I believe in uh, and not lose the citizens in it? So how can we uh, act on the more social, I call it social level, you can call it whatever you like, but... uh, Mm.
1: I think that would require a lot of engagement at the national level, at the regional level, as well as the local level. And that it would be up to the more local politicians and bodies to sell it rather than from the European Union. I don't think that the European Union coming from Brussels, that this is going to play very well across the EU. So you need a buy-in from the constituents, from the member states. And so they also have to be ready to get out there and say, this is beneficial. This is something that we need. One thing, it's a very simple example, but I always remember this when I was traveling through Europe in the 1990s. I remember seeing pamphlets on German trains, um, the Euro, Stark wie der Mark and trying to go and convince citizens that you know it's going to be okay if we go in this direction. And I haven't seen campaigns like that since. But we should reconsider this, the importance of engaging the citizens and making sure that we do have a local buy-in. And it's not just something that the people in Brussels thought of.
0: Yes, Michel, but it would be easier, wouldn't it, if globalization had not become associated with growing inequality in the United States and in Europe? And that, for me, is a huge challenge. We have to somehow address it.
1: Yes, and I think that the European Union, as well as the United States, we do have a recognition now that we didn't have a decade ago of the dangers of globalization, and that although it has brought about more efficiency, it's also brought about more dangers as well. But people have to understand this trade-off, that their phones will become more expensive, for example. And that having everything all at once, you know, having your cake and eating it, for example, that that's just not in the cards.
0: And energy, we also we come
1: energy, yes.
0: It's 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 an obvious point. Uh, uh, I want to come back to macroeconomics uh, because it's also an important issue. But before that, uh, I want us to exchange a bit about trade because after all, trade is in our DNA. In the EU, we are the biggest trading uh, power in the world. Uh, and we rely a lot, our uh, uh, ex- our ratio exports to GNI is, of course, very high. Uh, at the same time, we see that the uh, WTO doesn't function very well. We have our issues with our American friends, we have issues with the uh, Chinese, but it does, generally speaking. Uh, now, the EU, we always have a tendency to say, OK, that's the solution multilateral, but if the others don't play the game, and we obliged to be strong enough with autonomous measures to defend ourselves.
1: I think that the European Union has been moving past the multilateral system for quite a while now. And you can look at the various trade documents that have been produced, like Trade for All, Global Europe, you know, and all of its predecessors acknowledging that although multilateralism would be the preferred solution, it's the most efficient solution that going out and striking um, plurilateral, bilateral trade deals is the direction that will yield the most fruit at this point. And with that in mind, however, we have both the economic and the political aspects of trade and the difficulties and the intricacies when you start wrapping a lot of things around that trade banner, which the European Union is quite known for doing. And so it might have some very good reasons behind it for agricultural reasons, for social reasons and the like but it also makes progress very difficult and we see a lot of trade agreements that have been in limbo for quite a long period of time and so you know is is this worth it you know how closely are we going to go and stick to all of these demands
0: yes we uh, we have been overloading the trade agenda with all kinds of other things and to the extent actually that while we can vote by qualified majority voting on trade matters, if you stick in all the other elements, the human rights clauses, the climate change clauses, all that, you actually end up with unanimity, and very often with the need to ratify every single trade agreement in 27 countries, which, as we know, is very difficult. So, uh, uh, I think uh, the commission today is working in the direction of getting back to using trade articles in the Uh, treaties in order to do trade agreement. Is that right? Is that correct?
1: They are. And I would also say that on the one hand, it has led to a lower level of ambition when it comes to these trade agreements. We we don't have to look any further than what the European Union and the U.S. has been doing as far as their own trade agreements Mm -hmm. that they are quite modest, especially if you compare it to what has come before. But if this is progress, if this is forward momentum, that is still something.
0: Okay. As I said before, uh, let us move to macroeconomics because I know you have a particular interest in those issues. There are, again, quite a few challenges out there. I mean, we just see now the new banking crisis with what's happening with Credit Suisse and uh, each time we're being told it's the last time, but then something happens. And each time the reaction is, but it will not happen at our place. But So I'm a bit nervous about that. Uh, the second question is the question of the fiscal policies in the EU, the reform of the uh, Growth and Stability Pact, for instance, which I think we're in the midst of this debate. There was a lot of opening of the floodgates, or for credit there was quantitative easing by the uh, European Central Bank. But at some stage we have to get back to a sounder management of our debt And of our deficits so how do you see those issues
1: well to start with the first question i guess that is should we be worried when it comes to financial stability in europe and i think that we have cause for concern when it comes to contagion of financial crisis they are very difficult to predict in advance and so any weaknesses that might not have seemed to be weaknesses or so such major ones even institutions that didn't seem to be very large or systemic can suddenly be engulfed within the context of a crisis and then spread. And so this is getting back to the importance, um, one of the completion of banking union, which we have seen very little political momentum in a while. And also the pre- the development of alternative means of financing, which not only provides alternative financing, but also more of a cushion in case of economic downturns. And that would be capital markets union. And so that would be the answer to the first question. In the answer to the reform of the Stability and Growth Pact, I think that there have been some very positive developments on that. The first one being agreeing not to automatically revert to the old rules, but really wanting to have the new rules in place before calling off the um, the suspension of the Stability and Growth Pact. And I think that the increased flexibility and the concern for the medium term as opposed to the targets, the 3% is 60%, although the numbers still remain, that there are indications that there will be a higher degree of flexibility, which they were doing de facto in their interpretation. At least the commission was in the first place, but having it be part of the rules and also having the support of the member states would be important moving forward if this is to be a significant instrument because there have been many academics that have criticized the stability and growth pact for not having any bite and for allowing the member states to do what they were going to do anyway. And so were member states actually changing their behavior in order to comply with the rules? And that's a tough sell for many people.
0: If I understand you correctly, uh, you were pleading to make the stability, Growth Pact more intelligent. I say this because... uh, We remember uh, President Prodi at some stage saying that it was stupid. But, uh, no, I would agree with that. Of course, there is a fine balance to be found, isn't there? Because it's between having rules which are enforceable and then enforce them, rather than having rules which are not really enforceable, particularly in crisis time, and then only pretend to enforce them. Would you agree with
1: that? Yes, I would agree with that. Thank you. Yes, and I think that with the stability and growth pact in particular, that there has been the conflict of interest between some of the member states as well as the European Commission and where they see the stability and growth pact going. And so I think that conversation, that frank conversation and discussion so that they can find that middle ground of what the member states could actually live with, as well as what the commission thinks is needed going forward.
0: We come to the end of this talk, and thank you very much for having provided all these insights. I would maybe uh, ask you a final question, and a very easy question is uh, How do you, I mean, are you optimistic about the future of the EU when you look at all of those issues?
1: I tend to be optimistic because oftentimes at the end of the day, the European Union does find a way. It might not be optimal, it might not be pretty. But in the end, they see what needs to be done, and there is motion, there is momentum, and something happens. So I do have confidence in the European Union in the future.
0: Thank you very much, Michel. I think we end on a positive note, which I like very much. We know that the challenges are daunting. We've just gone through some of them. Of course, we couldn't enter too much into detail because, I mean, we would need many Europe chats to do this. But... I I wanted to use this discussion with uh, Michel, who has a very good overview of things, to give a more global picture of where we are, to ask the right questions. And I hope we've managed to do that. Uh, I would invite you to stay tuned in to uh, TAPSA, because we are going to continue to reflect and work on all of those challenges, and basically on all the challenges the EU faces. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission's support for the production
1: of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents, which reflects the views only of the authors, and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.